0: Romans 14, 1-9. As for the one who is, disp- who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. But not the one who eats, despise the one who abstains. But not the one who abstains, pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is, before his own, it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks, gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For at this end, Christ died and lived again, that He might be the Lord, be Lord both of the dead and of the living.
1: Okay. Thank you, Chris. Um, let me open us in prayer. Uh, Lord, we uh, we sang some wonderful songs about uh, your majesty, how we need to submit to you, and Lord, they're all true and they're all glorious, and I just pray, Father, that um, you would bring those things home to roost in our hearts and, and remind us of those truths. Um, Lord, I want to pray for um, the country of Myanmar, um, but especially for the churches there. Uh, Lord, over 20 years ago, when we visited and we went on a mission trip to uh, to that country, um, the military dictatorship was in control. Anion Suki was in prison, and um, the church was nervous and um, very cautious, and partly hiding. And Lord, it seems like we're just right back to where we were before. young Suki is under house arrest, and the military junta is in control again. Um, Lord, would you? Um, have mercy on that nation as protests are taking place, trying to uh, remove the the military dictatorship, um, opposing that and uh, asking again for democracy. Lord, we pray that you would bring peace and harmony there. Father, we ask that not just because of political reasons, but also, Lord, for the sake of the church. Uh, Father, you sent your servant Adorinam Judson there years and years ago. And uh, the Bibles that we used when we were talking with um, with the uh, Burmese were translated by him. And Lord, his his impact is, is lingering. So Lord, you have brought the gospel to that nation, and it has been fiercely opposed. And Lord, we just pray that uh, you would bring peace to that nation again so that the gospel there might flourish, so that all the peoples might hear the truth that Jesus Christ died to save them. It might be set free from the slavery to buddhism where they're poor can hardly pay for food and yet are plating huge monuments to buddha in gold Uh, lord i just pray that you would set that nation free and have mercy on them Uh, father would you cause the the gospel seeds that have been planted uh, for so many years to blossom and to grow and, uh, and bring them peace and so father we pray also now for our time together in your word Would you cause your word, uh, the seeds of your word that have been planted in our hearts to blossom and to grow? Would you cause us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, to be conformed to the image of your son? We know that that is your purpose. That is your eternal purpose in us is to conform us to the image of Christ. So do that now. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and work that in our hearts and our minds and make this message from your word. Uh, use it for those ends and, and apply it to our hearts. We ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. So um, last week we finished chapter 13. We we got to the end of that. And what we saw at the end of 13 was Paul's command, owe no one anything. Um, the only thing that you should owe, the only thing that you should never be able to pay back, that you should never say I have done enough, is to love one another. And when we said that, we we saw that it started with the the one another, which was probably referring to the people in in the church, love the church that way. And at the time, I said, so love the church, uh, the each other, Uh, That's mostly easy or at least easier. And um, so what Paul brings us to today is what happens when it's not easy? What happens when loving one another actually has some challenges? And so that's what we're going to see. Now, what we're talking about here, this is really from chapter 12 onward, Paul has been doing mostly application. And what he's really been focusing on is is that idea of sanctification, our growing in Christ, our growing to be more like him. And so you remember in um, chapter 12, verse 9, he gave us that great command, let love be genuine. And so where he's going now is he's continuing to flush that idea out. What does it look like for love to be genuine? And he asked that question, what does it look like within the household of God? So that's where we're at now is uh, really Paul's going to answer the question, how do we get along with people we largely already agree with? Um, you figure that would be easy, but it does have its problems. It does have its challenges. And so he's going to show us how to do that. He's going to demonstrate that for us today. So the section begins with, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. So when you look at this idea of, of the one who is weak in faith, what does that mean? What do they look like, somebody who is weak in faith? How would you recognize them? Uh, because it's never me who's weak in faith. It's always the person I disagree with, right? Um, but look at look at the way he paints this picture. We'll just look in the section that we have in front of us today and begin to piece together this idea of what this person who is weak in faith looks like. Well, first of all, in chapter one or verse one, there they're in faith. These are believers. These are not non-believers. They are in faith. Um, they're weak in it, but they're in faith. In verse two, he says the weak person eats only vegetables, so they have a scruple about food. They have this this thing that that food has uh, an importance and it has a mat- uh, It matters. Verse three says, "Let not the one who abstains pass judgment." So this this person who is weaker in faith, who has scruples about eating, they have a propensity or a danger of being judgmental about judging other people. Um, Verse 6, the one who observes the day. So these folks not only have this scruple about eating food, certain types of food, but they have a scruple about which day of the week to do that. And I say that it's about which day of the week, and we'll flesh this out when we get there. But in verse 6, it's verses, so the one who observes the day versus the one who eats. So that, that's what he's talking about there, is observing the day on which you're going to eat specific foods. But at the end of verse 6, he, he says something that, that we need to hear, we need to remember this. That one abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So that's the picture we have painted of this. What we see is this one who's weak and afraid, Refuses to make, eat meat, pays attention to eating on specific days, and is in danger of judging people. But they are in faith, and they honor God, and they give thanks to God. They're they're apparently they understand that they are justified by faith. Um, they they are not looking at this eating in these days and saying, well, that contributes to my justification. Why do I say that? Uh, the reason I would say that is because there is an example in the Bible of a church that didn't believe that, that believed that eating with or without certain people or circumcision would add to their justification. That's the book of Galatians. And when that happened, Paul wasn't just kind of nice with them. He wasn't passive. He was aggressive. It mashed a button with Paul that somebody would would link in the idea of circumcision or eating or not eating or something like that into their justification by faith. And in this section, we don't see any anger from Paul about that. That, That's not where he goes. So I think we need to be careful when we start off about this person who's weak in faith. First of all, they are in faith and they are justified by that faith. What they're, they're struggling with is to understand the full ramifications with that. And they haven't quite matured in that. That's why it's important. We are in sanctification growing. All of us are growing in Christ likeness. So we will have areas where we're weak, where we don't understand how this fits together. And so what Paul's going to give us today, he's he's going to paint this picture for us of how to receive people like that. Because what he says is, he says, welcome them. Um, and what he means by welcome them is not, um, I don't know if you'll remember this. This was a long time ago when we met physically in a building. Does that sound familiar? I, I've, I've forgotten what that was like. But There were times when you would meet somebody in the hallway and just say, hey, hey, good morning, you know, and kind of, you know, that was a welcome. Um, That's not what Paul means here. The word behind welcome has a richer, a more deep meaning. And and what it has to say, what it kind of means is bring them into full fellowship. It it has this, this idea of including them. So this weak person, this person who has this weakness about food. We're not supposed to welcome them by just saying, hi, good morning, and then never talk to them again. We're welcoming them into full fellowship. We're making them members of our church. We're inviting them to our our small groups and our potlucks and all of that. We're welcoming them in. The reason I say that, another part of the reason I say that is because Paul later says God has welcomed him, and God doesn't have that second tier, right? He doesn't have that group of people where he goes, I'm not going to damn them to hell, but I really don't like them very much. And so I'll just wave at him from a distance. Christ loves us. And so there's not that category. So that's what we're supposed to be mirroring. This person who is weak in faith, we are to welcome them. And, and we're to bring them in and to welcome them in an inclusive way. Uh, and we'll understand why as we go. But but like I said, this person, though they're justified by faith, that face of, faith isn't quite fully mature. So Paul issues this morning to those who are not weak in faith. And he says, welcome them, but not to quarrel over opinions. So in other words, you don't invite this person in so that you can argue about this thing. Um, The word quarrel there at its root has has the idea of judgment. Uh, That's the the root of the word behind it. But it also has this prefix on it called uh, dia, which means through. So through judgment. Now, this is not, I'm not saying that that's what that means. That's not how language works. If you try that with the word butterfly and you're not English speaker, you're going to be horribly confused. So that, that's called a root word fallacy, but it does kind of hint at the idea of what's behind that word. And uh, the way that it was used in classical Greek meant uh, evaluation by comparison or, or examination by comparison. So that's why quarrel is, is probably a good uh, a good translation of that. Uh, it's, it's probably getting at what's behind that. Don't welcome them in so that you can pick apart their position and, and evaluate it by comparison and and, and and do all of that. And then the second word is opinions. And, and really, that's, that's what it's talking about. It's this person has this opinion. Um, it, they have this persuasion. They have this inclination towards this thing. So don't welcome them in so that you can tell, hi, welcome to my church. Let me tell you how you're wrong. Uh, that, that's not the idea behind this. So what Paul is going to do for us in this section, he's, he's going to explain to us how we welcome them in and how we treat them. But at the same time, he's going to model it for us. He's going to show us what it looks like to welcome this this weaker person. So what he does is he, he says, um, there is a problem here, right? This person does have a problem. The problem is not eating, That's not the major issue here, um, because what Paul will go and correct him on is not, look, dude, Christ said all food is clean, so eat whatever you want. That's not the issue. That's an area that can be indifferent. It could be taken in different interpretations. It's not a matter of salvation. It's not a matter of church unity. Look at where Paul goes with this. How does he correct this, this person with weak faith? Verse three: Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? That's where he gets sharp. That's where he gets pointed. Is he saying you cannot be judgmental about this? You cannot be a judgmental person about this. This is not um, to uh, this. This is not that modern idea of judge not lest ye be judged. Right? Um, don't judge them. Don't quarrel with them about eating, but don't let them be judgmental either. Now he's not saying that you can never judge anybody about anything. There's other places in the Bible that says, "Look, do you have? Don't you have somebody who's competent to judge these these cases?" And I'm not talking about people outside the church. I'm talking about people inside the church. So Paul wants to make sure that he is judge that people are judging for the right reasons. And the scruple you have over eating or not eating is not worthy of judging your brother. Um, it's it's not worthy of dividing over. It's not worthy of, of breaking up. But again, he doesn't address that issue of eating. He just sidesteps it completely and heads right to the heart of the matter. He he addresses the person who's being judgmental. Uh, their weak faith has led them to be judgmental. But what does it mean that they're judgmental? What, what are they judging the other believer for? If this is not a matter of uh, really important doctrine, then why does Paul even bother with the judgmental part? And and what I think that person who has got scruples about eating is saying is, um, since we've noticed that they're saved, they're in the faith, they're not uh, saying that this justifies them. What they could be doing is, is it could be that they're looking at the brother and saying, look, eating anything other than vegetables on this particular day is not bringing God the most glory. You are not glorifying God in heaven, Uh, because that's what he says, they don't eat in order to honor and glorify God. So when they look at that, they're judging their brother, not saying you are damned to hell if you eat this food on this day. What they're saying is, if you don't follow this, this tradition, this um, this way of doing things, then what you're doing is you're not bringing God the maximum amount of glory. And I'm judging you for that. I'm saying that you're wrong for doing that. So that's that's where Paul corrects them is, um, when you pass judgment on another, you, you're wrong to pass judgment about these things. And then he goes and he explains, well, you know, I'm not supposed to pass judgment on somebody else. That, that's what Paul condemns. The other thing he tells the person, the, the person who can eat, is he says, don't despise the person who doesn't eat. So notice they're both heart issues, aren't they? I can have a judgmental attitude towards somebody else, or I can despise somebody else. I can count them as worthless, as weak. And Paul says, don't do either one of those things. Uh, so you who are have no compunctions about eating, don't despise those who do. You who do have compunctions about eating, don't you dare judge somebody else. Okay, Paul, how do I do that? Um, I can't help it. It wells up in my heart and I can't stop that. Um, maybe eating for us is not the big issue today. Maybe that's not the major issue that the church is arguing about. There are other issues that the church is gonna wrestle through. How can the church engage with these different opinions and not look at the other person and go, oh, you know, you're just a terrible Christian or, gosh, I I care nothing about your opinion. Look at where he goes with this. He says, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So when you consider that other person, because it's always the other person who's weak in faith, right, not you. So when you consider that person who's weak in faith, the way that you can begin to check your heart and wrestle against that temptation to despise them or to judge them is to remember the Lord is able to make that person stand. This person is redeemed. They are in Christ. Jesus is at work in their life. And though we may disagree on this issue and and disagree strongly sometimes, the Lord is able to make that person stand. How will that person ultimately get to heaven how will he ultimately wind up at the throne of grace? Not because they eat or they don't eat, not because they observe this day or that day. They will get there because the Lord is able to make them stand. And when you have that idea, when you put what uh, in front of you what is the most important thing, which is this is the Lord's work, then you can begin to check your heart. You, you, you will immediately recognize this judgmental attitude I'm, I'm having towards them is wrong. The Lord is able to make them stand. This despising them, and the word behind that has to do with counting them worthless or inconsequential. Um, When that begins to well up, you go, now, wait a minute. The Lord is able to make them stand. That's not, that person is not unworthy. That person is not worth uh, worthless. So to the eaters don't despise the non-eaters. They're not worthless or contemptuous. They belong to the Lord. He will make them stand to the non-eaters don't judge the eaters. The Lord is their Lord. He will make them to stand. The eating or the not eating is not going to break them down. It's not going to kick them out of heaven. So I really love that uh, that chorus we sang this morning, shake up the ground of all my tradition, break down all the walls of my religion. These things that I've constructed that I use to despise or to judge my brother or sister in Christ, tear them down. And then the next thing he says in that song is, Your way is better. It's Jesus' way. It's not our way. It's Jesus' way. So that's what we want to go with. So where he goes now in in verse 5, he introduces something. But but let me skip to the second sentence of verse 5, and then we'll come back and look. Paul says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So he's looking at these two people, the eaters and the non-eaters. And he doesn't say which one's right and which one's wrong that'll kind of come up later in the chapter because it's not good to leave somebody in that position. But what he says is, you eaters and you non-eaters, be convinced in your own mind, understand your position, be able to articulate your your position, be convinced of your position, but on this matter of indifference, be able to, to disagree faithfully and carefully. This takes a degree of humility on our part Because we have to assess which doctrines are so important that we we can't let them slide and which ones are in the middle ground where there's an honest difference of opinion on these things. Um, There is a bound to orthodoxy. There is an an outside border to orthodoxy. And if you cross that border, you are outside the faith. Um, So how do we carefully articulate that boundary? How do we watch that? And then at the same time within that boundary, how do we tolerate each other? Um, that's that's a difficult thing to do. There's a lot of room inside that bounds of orthodoxy. In the Evangelical Free Church of America, um, we have this thing that we call the significance of silence. And what we mean by that is not where the scriptures are silent. What we mean by that is we have things that we believe, but since they're not part of orthodoxy, we will remain silent on them as a denomination not as an individual or as a church. So this is uh, Greg Strand is the director of theology for the free church. That does not mean he's the Pope. (laughs) It doesn't mean that he tells us what we must and must not believe. What he does is he's part of the board of ministerial standings, which is the credentialing agency of the free church, the people who will issue ordinations. And so they have to define and, and articulate what the statement of faith is bounding. So he's the one who, who, I first heard talk about the significance of silence, and this is how he describes it. He said, we focus, we, the free church, focus on the essential truth of the the gospel of Jesus Christ as articulated in doctrine. So there are doctrines, there are teachings about that, while allowing differing views and understandings of the position to be acceptable. So we will take... The, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the doctrines that attend it, and we'll, we'll be clear on those, and we'll allow differences of opinions on some of them. For example, he says, this is true regarding the issue of the age of the universe, the time and mode of baptism, whether faith precedes regeneration or regeneration precedes faith. These are our, our, our doctrines that are important, and we articulate them in our statement of faith. We say that God created the universe. What our statement of faith does not say is how long it took him to do it, when he did it, that kind of thing. Our statement of faith says believers must be baptized. What our statement of faith does not do is say when must they be baptized, at what age must they be baptized, how must they be baptized, can they be immersed, can they be sprinkled? Our statement of faith says that believers are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, born again, is the other way of saying it. What they, our statement of faith does not nail down and articulate is, do we have faith so that we may be born again, or are we born again so that we may have faith? There, there's differences of opinions on that. So here's here's where, where um, Greg Strand goes with that. He said, we refer to these theological differences as the significance of silence. This expression does not mean that we will not discuss and debate these issues, but simply that we will not divide over them. So this is what Paul is saying, is each one of you must be convinced in your own mind. And I think the free church is capturing that idea. Know what you believe, know why you believe it, be able to defend your belief, and know if it's worth dividing over. So I'm, I'm, I've turned in my ordination paper, which brings Lisa and I great joy, And I'm waiting. (laughs) Can't wait. Um, I'm waiting to defend it. So what will have to happen is the board of ministerial standing will assign somebody my ordination paper and they will assemble a council and I'll have to come. And it's a four hour interview where I will have to go through and defend these different positions. So do I have a position on the age of the earth? Yes, I do. Can I defend it? Yes, I can. Can I articulate it? I certainly will but I will not make my opinion the border for my friendship. I will not make that opinion the border for inclusion in this church. Do I have an opinion on whether regeneration, being born again, precedes faith or follows faith? You better believe I do. And I hold it very firmly. And I, if you wanna know, I will talk with you about it, but I'm not gonna make that a border for fellowship. It's not, it's a fine detail on something that is very essential and true. You're saved by faith, you're born again. But nailing those little particulars down are not really what is the most important thing. I am convinced in my own mind, I'm willing to discuss and debate it with you. But I will not say, well, you don't agree with me, you're out. That's just not right. That's not the right way to do it. And if I can confess something to y'all, it's just us anyway. I used to have a real problem debating baptism online with people. I just had the argument nailed down I had it all figured out I was convinced in my own mind and if anybody ever said anything that was out of line boy I just I had to fight that inner person who wanted to go out and engage them on that every single time so it took a while before I got over that so I I sympathize if you have your favorite issue you want to fight over Uh, we all kind of do I will discuss with you infant baptism versus believer's baptism. I have a strong opinion on it. I understand both positions and I can articulate them well, but I am not going to engage on that anymore. I repent (laughs) of of being overly uh, pugnacious on that. Um, So the free church has really taught me a lot about we can have fellowship around these things. Now, let me articulate one more little thing about the free church's significance of silence That means that as a denomination, we won't nail those things down. Um, That does not mean that individual churches won't nail some of those things down. Uh, If they feel it is important, the individual church may say, they may come to a specific position on something and say, this is our church's position. But as a denomination, if you're part of the free church, you have to say, well, I'm willing to be part of a denomination with a church that doesn't believe that same thing. And so so it's not that it's not important. It is important, and you need to be clear. It's just not a boundary of of fellowship. There are denominations that have very elaborate and very detailed statements of faith that include things that we probably wouldn't include um, for the whole denomination. Uh, Many of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, they're, they're denominations, PCA, OPC, and a couple others, will hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which nails down some of this stuff. But even then, even with something that's much more elaborate statement of faith, even then there's room for debate in there. And and I have seen Presbyterians debate on certain issues, both pointing to the the Westminster Confession and saying that's true. Um, It's possible to do this, to do Romans 14, without being a member of the Evangelical Free Church. I just want to be clear on that. Um, so what, what Paul says next is he, he says, be convinced in your own mind, but then he addresses this issue. One person esteems one day is better than another. And so where does the day come from? All of a sudden we've been talking about eating or not eating. And suddenly he drops day in on us. Now I have had discussions with people who point to this and say, there is no Christian Sabbath. There is no specific day on which the church is supposed to worship. It's it's open because right here it says one person esteems one day better than another, another person esteems them all as the same. So obviously it's an indifferent matter. Um, that position could be argued theoretically from other posi- other paper or other uh, uh, passages. This ain't addressing that. This is addressing that issue of eating still. Why do I say that? Because the next thing he says is the one who eats eats in honor of the Lord or. Uh, Um, The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. So that is pitting and comparing eating and a day. Um, So what's going on here? Well, it's not specifically about which day to worship on. It appears to be which day to fast on. And and let me support that argument for a moment. Um, There is an ancient document called the teaching of the 12 or the didache because didache is, is teaching. The didache was a very early document, probably written in the hundreds, 150, somewhere around there. And I believe, my opinion is, it was a um, baptismal catechism. You would take a a believer, somebody who's seeking baptism, you'd take them through the didache, through the teaching of the 12, and then they could be baptized. Um, And what it was, was it just had a bunch of practical things, a bunch of doctrinal issues and practice issues. Uh, One that makes me snicker, and I probably shouldn't snicker, but I'm going to anyway is chapter eight, and chapter eight is about fasting and about praying. And so here's what they say in chapter eight about fasting. Let not your fast be with the hypocrites, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays. But do you fast on Wednesdays Wednesdays and Fridays? There you go. You won't be a hypocrite if you, if you fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. It's laughable now, but apparently, since it made it into this document, Which day of the week you fasted on was a major issue for the early church. It made a difference. And so I think that's what what Paul is talking about here is, as he's saying, one person eats only vegetables, the other person's free to eat anything. He'll eat shellfish and pork and beef and all of that. Um, And then suddenly dropping day in, I think what he's saying is, this person has specific days on which they fast. Maybe they have days on which they don't eat meat. Something along those lines. So apparently this was an important issue to the early church because they had to articulate it. Don't be like the hypocrites. Those hypocrites fast on these days. We want to distance ourselves from them so fast on other days. So I think that's what Paul's getting at. And so this, this matter that's indifferent to Paul, um, somebody else wrote down and thought it was a pretty big deal. Um, so this is really one of those guides that is showing us how we can have differences of opinion, even differences of practice, and not push them to the point where we're excluding people. So um, the reason I say that is because what he says is, he says, one observes the day and the other eats. They both observe it in honor of the Lord. So here's, here's where it comes down to what is your issue? What is it that you you are so firm on that you will argue that you, know, you, you have to repent of arguing about baptism? Is it the Christian Sabbath? Is it the age of the universe? Is it the mode of baptism? Is it the Bible translation? Is it the form of church government? Is it hymns versus choruses, timing of the millennium, whatever it is, you will have an opinion on this and you will be strongly attracted to your opinion. Here's the question that Paul asks. Is it in order to honor the Lord. Is that why you're arguing that? Or do you just like to argue? Or do you just like to be right? Or do you have this this creeping fear that somebody's wrong and you have to correct them? That's how you can check your heart at this point, is when you're about to jump on somebody about amillennialism versus premillennialism, check yourself and go, hold on for a second now, is this to honor Jesus? How does Jesus get honored in this question? And if you can't come up with an answer, I would suggest you back off of that argument and, and search your own heart and spend some time in prayer or meditation about, Lord, why am I so upset about this? Why does this really get to me? Um, because that's where this is. Ask yourself, where is Jesus in this debate? And if Jesus is not in this debate, avoid it. So this is how we can get along with people we largely agree with, right? We agree with them on everything except this issue of eating Or we agree with them on everything except this doctrine of the Sabbath. Uh, We agree with them on everything except the timing of the millennium. How can we get along with them? Part of it involves self reflection Am I doing this to honor the Lord or am I doing it for my own selfish reasons? And so this is where Paul takes us. He, He wants us to not argue about those folks or not welcome those folks just to argue with them, but to welcome them because they belong to Jesus. Because we have fellowship with them, because we have the same Master and Lord, and that's where he goes next in verses seven and eight. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord; if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. So that that's where he takes us. None of us live to ourselves or die to ourselves. What does that mean? I think what he gets, what he's getting at there, is. We are not the master and commander of our life and our death. We are not the one who is deciding how we will live our life and how, we, how and when we will die. Because we have a master. We have a Lord who is over us. We have Jesus who is deciding these things. He is directing and guiding our life. He is directing and guiding our death. So that whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. In other words, there's no portion of our life, our existence, in which we escape Jesus' rule. Even in death, we're his. Even in death, we belong to him. That's why Paul ends this section. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So in your death, in your life, you belong to the Lord. So when when we look at people and we say this is a person who belongs to the Lord, we can remember to welcome them, to bring them into full fellowship, but not to argue over minor points not to argue over opinions. Why? Because that person belongs to Jesus, just like I belong to Jesus. Now, one last little thing here to to add a little caveat. There are times and issues where practically we can't be the same church because these practical issues are Things that are practiced in a certain way that that our practice just won't jive. That doesn't mean because there's another church that does something differently than us that we don't agree with. That doesn't mean we're divided and we hate them and, and they're going to hell and we're not. So, if on the issue of the Lord's Supper, um, w- there is a position called memorialism, and what that says is the Lord's Supper, the the bread and the and the wine is just a memorial. It's just something to say, to remind us of who Jesus is and what he's done. Then on the other end of that extreme, the uh, the Lutheran, the Orthodox Lutheran pers- perspective on that is that bread and that wine actually become Jesus' body and blood. They take on that position of Jesus' body and blood for us. Um, they are both at the same time, bread and body, blood and wine. They're both at the same time. And so when you eat and drink them, you're actually eating and drinking God's grace into you. And then there's a third position that's kind of halfway between the two that says, this remains bread, this remains wine. When we eat it, it's not just us sitting here and remembering. God is actually present with us as we celebrate the supper. And he is communicating to us his grace through this bread and through this wine, though it remains bread and wine. So it's, it's, it's a memorial, it's a real presence, and it's a spiritual presence. And those things may wind up dividing a church, because if you handle those differently, if you talk about them in different ways, um, it, it makes it very difficult to keep those together. Um, mode of baptism, uh, subject of baptism. Should we baptize believers only or believers only and their infants? Well, the pastor is going to have to make that decision because he's going to have to baptize. And so that might be an issue that drives us apart to to separate into different groups to worship. But that doesn't mean that we have to lob stones at the others and say, well, they're they're not really Christians. And we are because we've got the issue of baptism nailed down. Um, Be convinced in your own mind, but don't forget, those people could be the Lord's as well. And so um, there's a sense of unity. And then there's a sense of division and division is not always necessarily a bad thing. It might just be a necessary thing. So the the bigger point here is how do we get along with those people who we largely agree with? We we would read through maybe their statement of faith or their catechism or their confession and say, you know, I agree with about 90% of that. How do you get along with that person? Well, first of all, self-reflection, check your heart am I doing this to honor the Lord? Where is Jesus in this? Second step is don't do it just to argue. If you want to debate, if you want to discuss, we can do that. But I I don't want to do it just for that reason. Where is Jesus in that? And, And so that's kind of where Paul's going to continue on. We've got more work to do in this, but I thought this was important to set up to begin with. So as we continue through 14, we'll continue to discuss these issues that can divide. And, and we'll work through them, and, and hopefully we've laid a good foundation here so that when we move forward, we're ready to have broad fellowship with people who broadly agree with us. Let me close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, would you please grant us unity? Um, I think of Ephesians that says that we should not uh, disrupt the unity, the spiritual unity that already exists, and Lord, we don't have to throw stones at at those who disagree on, on things that are not central to the gospel. Uh, Father, I pray for your church throughout America, the broad church in America. Lord, would you grant us increased unity where it's possible. Lord, with your evangelical church, the church that believes in the inerrancy and the infallibility and the authority of scripture, that the personal encounter with Jesus Christ is necessary. Lord, would you bring revival and healing and unity within your church in America Father, I think especially of the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Protestant denomination in America, and the the struggles that they're going through now. Lord, would you grant them amazing grace, overflowing unity, a big heart in order to be able to be unified. And Lord, I pray that you would bring to your evangelical church revival, not just to the Southern Baptist, not just the Evangelical Free Church of America, but to these local congregations, Lord, would you bring a revival, a renewal of that love of Jesus Christ, a renewal of that commitment to follow him, a renewal of that announcement that Jesus is my Lord and master. And Lord, would you spark in your church that revival and then pour it out to the rest of our nation? And Lord, would you begin with us? Would you begin with with Trinity Community Church and, and our other friend churches in the area and just pour out your spirit, we pray. We ask this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen.